Well, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 32 and 33 today. I would invite you to turn there in your Bible or in the one in the pew. We will have some of the words up on the screen. But we've been studying in the book of Exodus as we've been getting ready for a move from one place to the other to say, are there any examples in the Bible of people on the move and how they dealt with it? And uh, what can we learn? And uh, we're learning plenty about our God because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then we also learned that he had a whole bunch of whiners around him, (laughs) you know, and uh, we want to see if we can't do better than that as we do a move. We're not moving out of slavery. We're moving from one beautiful spot to the other. And uh, it uh, is going to be a whole lot smoother for us than it was for these people, Uh, but uh, just to learn some of the lessons that God was teaching them. So we've been studying this under the title, God's Way Out, The Joy of Following. And uh, we haven't talked maybe as much about that last half, that joy of following as we could, but um, God is doing a huge work in this world. And uh, in this situation uh, in the Old Testament, people had prayed earnestly, God, deliver us, save us, help us. And uh, some of them had really prayed and prayed, and others had been rather indifferent, and uh, others actually had opposed what God was doing. But uh, guess which ones were filled with the joy of the Lord? The ones who obeyed and followed God even when it was hard. The ones that went kicking and screaming and being dragged along by one leg. uh, The ones who were doing their own thing, they still went, but they missed out on the joy. So how to say, God, what are you trying to do in me, in us, in us as a church? And how do we be following you, be right in step with you? That really is our goal. In this situation, God has called his people out of slavery And he's called them into the wilderness, which I don't know if you've ever gone out to a wilderness or uh, to the desert. It's it's hard to live there. I mean, it's hot. It's too cold. It's uh, you know the uh, the food's bad. There's dust and dirt everywhere, and uh, the the bed's hard. And and yet it's a a time for realizing what's important and how do you survive. And it's a tough times like that can provide clarity and direction and focus and get you back to the basics. And their situation help them to listen to God's word. And some of the greatest gifts that God gives come in tough times and when things aren't all going our way. So God also took them to the wilderness to receive his gifts. He had things he wanted to give them, like the law to give them some guidance, or a priesthood to connect God to man, or a system of sacrifice to get them right with God, or the tabernacle because God is not visible, it can't be seen, it's a walk of faith. So he said, I'm going to give you a tabernacle to be among you, and you'll have a, so you'll know that's my house because I want to live with you, that God dwells with us even when we can't see him. In their situation, God even had a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day that represented him so the people would know God is with you because he loves you. Well, God called his people. He also called a leader named Moses. He called Moses to be his man and to lead the people. And Moses started when God called him. He was at a point of failure in his life. He'd had a breaking experience, and uh, he had allowed it to consume half his life. It had, it had, it had this uh, breaking experience when he was 40. Now he's 80, but it was okay with him if it took the whole rest of his life because he was a failure. And then God showed up and called him. And said, I have a job for you to do. And Moses didn't want to do it. Six different ways he figured out, how, no, no, thank you. Pick somebody else. No, no, can't you, can't you do it some other way? And finally God prevailed upon him. And so he went to Egypt. He brought everybody out. He brought them back to Mount Sinai to worship. And then God said, leave the people at the bottom of the mountain. In fact, draw a line. Tell them, don't cross that line. And wait. And Moses, you come up here. And uh, this, I had to read this twice because it's not how we live our life. But maybe we should. God said, Moses, come up, and it took Moses seven days to get ready to come into God's presence. 
Seven days of his own praying and preparation. And then when he went up on the mountain with God, he was 40 days and nights face to face with God. And he didn't even worry about food or, or water all that time. God just sustained him. And here you have just two guys in, uh, in together. He's in God's presence. They're at peace. It's like being with a great friend, listening to pearls of wisdom from somebody who knows everything and uh, just enjoying one another's company. And at the end of Exodus 31, it says, God gave Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony. It's the Ten Commandments on the two tablets. And the tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, down around the bottom of the mountain, or the throng, it says in Exodus that there were 600,000 men in the army. So if all the men were in the army... There were probably more, but if all men were in the army and all had one wife and one child, that would be over two million people. And they've all been freed from slavery, and then they've been tempered in their experience to get to Mount Sinai in the wilderness with thirst, and then with hunger, and then with enemies who've attacked them. And they have seen miracle after miracle by God, and they have been fed by God's hand. Every day they get up and there's a, a, a fresh present uh, of uh, bread waiting for them uh, to eat and meat and what was their job while God is talking with Moses? God had said, wait here while Moses comes to talk to me. Sometimes God says, get ready. Sometimes he says, move. Sometimes he says, run. Sometimes God says, wait. Just wait. Just stand there. And that's what he's told these people to do. And it's uh, seven and then 40. So 47 days, they're expected just to wait and to wait, to wait expectantly and to wait prayerfully and to maintain their dignity and respect for their newly acquired freedoms. But Israel might have gotten out of Egypt, but Egypt isn't out of Israel. And we pick up Exodus 32 and says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and they said to him, up. Now, I don't know whether... He's sitting on the ground, and they said, get up, or whether it's saying they're all ganging up on him, and uh, it's time to get after this. He says, up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses fellow, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, I don't know if you remember, but just before they left Egypt, God instructed them, go to the Egyptians and ask them for their jewelry and for their gold. He said, and I will put favor for you in their hearts, and they will hand you their gold. And so they did. So I don't know if they, you know, they come out of, all of a sudden now they're leaving Egypt. They take all the gold with them, and they get out to the desert. And the Bible doesn't say anything about it. I wonder if they had a piercing party, because now they have all this jewelry for their earrings, their nose, who knows when, their necklaces, you know, and all this stuff. And it's not mentioned in the Bible, but suddenly everybody's got the bling. Everybody's just loaded with jewelry. I think it would have looked kind of funny to see your friends in their desert drab outfit. I mean, think about it. When you go camping, what do you wear, you know? And then to have on just the finest of jewelry that, that money didn't have to buy, that they got for free, uh, you know, and to have their formal wear jewelry around their neck and in their near ears and probably on their nose. Hey, didn't, didn't you wear that robe yesterday? Oh, yeah, and the day before and all last week. And, and you've got that brand new jewelry on. My, that looks nice. And... <laughs> 
You know, it says when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. He, he makes the calf, and they started to worship the calf. When he saw it, he knows he's done the wrong thing. And Aaron made a proclamation said, ah, tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And then they sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. This is one of the saddest passages in the Bible. I mean, these people have been given so much. And they've seen miracles, and they have been saved by God's mighty hand over and over, and they've heard God's word right from God's lips, and they have made verbal commitments to obey and to follow God, and now all they're being asked to do is wait, just wait, just wait for God's timing. And while Moses is up on the mountain communing with God, God's people in the valley below choose idolatry over obedience to God. Here they are, just like us. They're chosen, they're loved, they're called, they're rescued, they're guided, they're gifted, they're blessed, they're provided for, they're protected, and they're willing to sacrifice all their gold for an idol. And it leads them down into gross, immoral behavior. And at the people's request, Aaron, of all people, creates a golden calf, and the people worship it, and then begin this party and revelry. Aaron is Moses' number one assistant. He's the designated mouthpiece to speak God's word. He's been chosen by God to be the high priest of, to the Lord, and Aaron knows he's way out of bounds. That's why he builds an altar. That's why he says tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. See, these people, they're tired of an invisible God. They want one they can see. But a relationship with God is always a walk of faith. It's always a walk of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight, the Bible says. It always has been. It always will be. We read God's word. We ask his spirit to guide and lead us and guide us. We follow what his word says, even if it's not comfortable or PC or in style. And we just say, God, help us as we walk with you. Because if you walk with God, you're going to be out of step with this world. And I don't know if this mob had, that had approached him all at once had scared Aaron into doing the wrong thing. He should have known better, but he's trying to live like the devil today, and then tomorrow let's have this worship to God, and everything will be fine. We'll just sing, Jesus loves me, and it'll all go away. It doesn't work like that, and God wasn't fooled. In fact, it really frustrated God, as we're going to see, and there were consequences. It's shocking. How could such depravity break out in the midst of such holiness? How, how could such gratitude for redemption from slavery in Egypt so soon just give way to idolatry and revelry? I mean, I don't know. Sin is irrational. It's not logical. It's not smart. But we just do it sometimes. We do too, and we worship God on Sunday, and then we live starting on Monday for ourselves, and God is not fooled. He wants all of you all the time. He wants to be in charge in your whole life. And look at verse 7 and 32. Moses and God kind of get into it, and they sound like two parents with a naughty child. The Lord said to Moses, go down, Moses, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way I've commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf. They've worshipped it. They've sacrificed to it, and they've said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And God's kind of sarcastic there, I think, uh, copying, you know, what the people have said. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, and my wrath is going to burn hot against them, and I'm going to consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. God's been rejected. 
not by their words, they said the right thing, but in their worship, by their actions, in their homes and in their neighborhoods. And God is hot. He says, Moses, leave me alone. I'm so mad I'm going to consume him. I'm going to start over with you. And if God had done that, his judgment would have been justified. He would have been fair, and he still could have accomplished all of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, God didn't have to use those people. He didn't end up using most of them because of the hardness of their hearts, because they were stiff-necked, as God says, because they refused to, to bend and to do what God wanted them to do. And God doesn't have to use us either. He doesn't have to use me. He doesn't have to use you to accomplish His plans in this world, but He wants to. And it sure is a blessing when God says, I'm going to use you. You are my servants. You are my people. You are my church in that place. Do my work. Be my people. Tell my good news. Share it. In infect people around you with the love of God. Even if it's inconvenient, even if it's hard, even if it's uncomfortable. Look at Moses. Standing there hearing God say, I'm going to destroy everything. I'm just going to start with you, Moses. And it says, but Moses implored the Lord his God, and he said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn against your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. I don't know if you still, anybody still reads Kingeth Jameth. That's what we memorized in boarding school, but the word right here, it said, turn from your burning anger and repent from this disaster. But God didn't repent. That has an implication that God made a mistake. God makes no mistakes. He's perfect. And so the word also is correctly translated, relent, change your mind, go a different way. It says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they will inherit it forever. I mean, God and Moses here talking like two parents with a difficult child, and Moses says to God, God, calm down. They're your people. You saved them. Don't destroy them. Remember your promises. And Moses' prayer made a difference with God. He didn't repent. He hadn't done anything wrong. But Moses' plea changed how God dealt with the people. The Bible says God relented from the disaster he was going to bring. Of course, now, you see, God is seeing this firsthand. Moses isn't. He isn't there. He's just hearing about it. So he doesn't know really how bad it is. So... He isn't aware of how ugly and how awful and how repugnant and how rebellious and in God's face this sin is. So Moses is handed the Ten Commandments by God and he goes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, you know, five under this arm, five under that arm, and he can begin to hear the music first. And then he sees the dancing and the revelry and he sees the golden calf and his anger boils over again and he slams the Ten Commandments down on the ground. And I think it's kind of cool that this part isn't edited out, that the Bible doesn't candy coat what happens happened for, I mean, his whole life, Moses had an anger problem. It shows up over and over and over, all the way through. In fact, if he were alive today, he would be in anger management classes. <laughs> and every time his anger boiled over, it got him into trouble. When he was 40 years old and he saw one of his Hebrew brothers being picked on by an Egyptian, he goes over and he clubs the Egyptian and kills him and he buries him, and, and that cost him everything. He had to run away and hide as a fugitive for what he thought was the rest of his life. 
When he, God later, God says to come to him and says, Moses, speak to that rock and water will come gushing out. And the Bible says the rock was Christ. Moses is so mad at all the people and all the silly stuff they came up with. He takes the rod of God in his hand and he gives the rock a big old whack. And God still honored him and had the water come out. But because of that, God said, you're not going to enter the promised land. You will lead the people for 40 years all the way through the wilderness, but you will not reach your goal of entering the promised land. And Moses apologized to God, and he was really sorry. He said over and over, I'm so sorry, sorry, sorry. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Please let me go in the promised land. Till finally God says, don't bring it up again. You're not going in. That's final. Even in his last address to the people, Moses was still blaming his disobedience to God and his anger on the people. He never really conquered this area of his life. And what we see is that God uses less than perfect people. Now, isn't that good news? At least for the people around you. That God will use imperfect people in this world to do his work. He doesn't wait till everything's just perfect and everything's going well and you're fully matured. He wants to use you right now to do his work in your home and here at church and in our community. And the account we're looking at today, Moses saw the people's uh, partying and their idol worship and his anger exploded. He slams the Ten Commandments down that God has gifted to him. I mean, think about it. Moses was the very first and maybe the only person to ever break all Ten Commandments at the very same time. The Bible says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. How do you do that? Now, of course, that was written by the Apostle Paul who came 1,500 years too late for Moses to benefit from this Word of God. But I think the only way you could do that is, number one, be Jesus. Because Jesus lived a perfect life and he did get angry, but he didn't sin. And the other is, only get angry about what Jesus would get angry about. Only get angry about what Jesus would get angry about. Jesus got angry and he took action in the temple because God's house was being turned into a black market because God's name was being taken in vain. In other words, Jesus didn't waste his righteous anger on himself. Now think about the last time or two that you got angry. Honestly, wasn't your nose out of joint over something that, you know, some disappointment or some, somebody failed to live up to some expectation of yours? Jesus focused his life on pleasing God, so he's not wasting his righteous anger on himself or his own hurts or his own issues. He's focused on pleasing God, so he got angry about people's attitudes and actions that don't please God. So you go back to Moses, he comes down the mountain, he catches everybody red-handed, he explodes in anger, he punishes the people, he goes and he finds Aaron and he says, what were you thinking? And Aaron has these pathetic excuses for his failure to provide godly leadership. You know what he said? He said, well, I threw the gold in the fire and out came this calf. And Moses said something like, liar, liar, pants on fire. And Moses divides the people between those who are going to stand with God and those who are going to go against God. And about 3,000 people died that day. And then Moses trudges back up the mountain to plead with God. And in Exodus 32, verse 31, it says, Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, dot, dot, dot. But if not, blot me out of your book that you have written. Wow, 
I mean, look at the transformation first that's just happened in Moses. To think he goes from saying, God, I don't want to go. Don't use me. I'm a failure. Just leave me here next to this burning bush. Send somebody else. I don't care is what he was saying. The same guy is saying, coming in the face of God to say, God, please forgive these people. And if not, then don't save me either. I mean, think about it. Is there anybody in your life, even family, that you'd say, well, God, if they're not going to heaven, I don't want to go. Let them t- just take me out of your book too. I mean, to show, I mean, he's showing, I am serious. I am putting myself on the line for these people. This is 180 degrees different from where he started of staying, sending somebody else. God's pleading, uh, Moses is pleading with God. He says, God, he doesn't make any justification for the people. He just says, God, what about you? What about your promises? What will your enemies say? These people have sinned horribly. You could forgive them, God, again. So they're your children, so forgive them or blot me out. Well, God is righteous, and sin is offensive to him. And God is just when he punishes the sinner. And God is also compassionate. And there's the rub. How does he be both? How does he do both? And God is listening to the prayers of his people. And so the Lord said to Moses, verse 33, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of the book. But now go lead the people to this place about which I have spoken, and my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. And he said, now, how does this apply to us? Where are we going with this? You know, God put this in his word for a reason. God doesn't change. God is still offended by sin. He doesn't respond the same way. He doesn't give us the insights that he gave Moses, but that's why they're right here in the book for us to read. God doesn't back away from saying, live a life of righteousness if you want to be in relationship with me. And he still is looking for people who will come to him and receive his forgiveness and claim his name for themselves and live by his agenda, not their own. I don't know if you ever had the experience, you know, you know the Lord, you've asked him into your heart, you're into the life, into your life, but you know there's something in your life that God wants you to change, but you just refuse to let go of it. You don't want to change. And somehow it doesn't seem that God's all that close. It doesn't seem like he really hears your prayers. Maybe it's something you're doing that's standing between you and God. And God is calling us to honor him in the big public ways and in the little private parts of our lives that only you and Jesus know about. This is a call to live a life that pleases God. See, none of us is far from Egypt. Just these people had been freed from Egypt and all it took was a little bit of hardship and a little bit of waiting, a little bit of grumbling and then they were headlong into idolatry. That's all it took. Israel had marched out of Egypt but Egypt did not march out of Israel. They still had this struggle until they gave God their hearts. They were still in bondage. And until people today give their hearts to God, they are still in bondage. You ask if you Christians do any better, even with the whole God's Holy Spirit inside, and we really hesitate to answer, don't we? I mean, Christians too are just flesh, and salvation doesn't mean glorification. Just because you've asked Jesus in your heart doesn't mean you've grown up to be the person God wants you to be. We have to focus on His Word and listen to His Spirit and follow Him day by day. It's not something that's going to happen in an instant, and we're all pilgrims. We're all travelers, and some are stronger than others. Some are further along. Look what the Apostle Paul wrote 
on this topic. Now, here's a guy who was a believer. He was a church leader. He was a missionary. He was a best-selling Christian author. And in Romans 7, starting verse 14, he said, We know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but the, I do the very thing I hate. For I have a desire to do what's right, but the, not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do. I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He said, I have no hope in my own strength, my own abilities. We don't seem to be able to get free from sin without God's intervention. I mean, notice here in Exodus that a decline in faith from God led to a decline in morality, that Israel abandons faith in God and in Moses, and it turns to idolatry and immorality. They're running wild is what it says there. And this is the great theme of Romans 1, that when man departs from a knowledge of the true God into idolatry, he doesn't stop there. He just keeps going headlong the wrong way. He moves on into serious moral defections from divine righteousness. Look at Romans 1, and 22, which this is just a fragment of what the whole thing which makes this point. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their own thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." God's reaction to the idolatry and reveling of Israel was to tell Moses, I'm not going with you. Look what he said, chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the mosquito bites. <laughs> Go up to a land flowing with the milk and honey, but I'm not going with you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God says, I'm going to send an angel. I'm going to get you to the promised land. That's what I promised you. I will finish the deal, and then we're done. Because if I go with you, I am so hot right now, you will be singed. You will not survive it. Can you imagine, though, going forward and no longer having God's support? No longer having God care about you or have his eye on you or protecting you or guiding you or leading you. It says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. He says, it's like putting a lipstick on a pig. Why are you trying to decorate something? When your hearts are so filled with sin and corruption and yourself and idol worship. So the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So while Moses up the mountain, enthusiastically, they're turning to idolatry and dancing. They never guessed how critical their great sin was. And then when they hear this sentence from God, they mourn and they strip the ornaments off. So what could we learn from their mistakes? Just honor God. Honor God with your life. Just obey God. Get back right with God today. Don't let anything stand between you and God. I mean, every believer has this struggle. Paul did, all of us ever since then. We're, we're flesh and we live in this uh, human, uh, natural world and God's spirit is in us. And how do you live for God in a world that's not living for God? You have to choose because you're either going to be in step with God or in step with the world. You can't do both. 
and God is their provider, and God was their protector. What were they thinking? God's reaction was, you went your own way. You wanted to go your own way. I'm going to just stand here. You just go on without me. And Moses goes, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. If you're not going, I don't want to go. I'll stay right here with you. Doesn't matter we're out in the wilderness. I don't need the promised land, God, if, it's, if, it's, if I get there without you. Moses stands in the gap begging God to continue to provide and to protect and to lead and to bless. And thank God he did. That's my prayer, and I would say make it yours as well. God, protect us, lead us, guide us. We don't want to be ahead of you, behind you. We want to be right in step with what you're doing with us as a church, with us as families, as individuals. Just be in step with God. Well, life went on, and Moses came back down the mountain, and his confidence had been rocked. And so his next prayer to God is this. He says, now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said, if your presence doesn't go with us, I don't want to go there. Moses wanted two things. He wanted to know the ways of God so that he could honor God and obey God. And he wanted to know, be sure to know God is present with him. And Moses said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now, who here hasn't said, God, show me more of yourself. Show me your glory. And God sometimes doesn't. We just have to keep trusting him and following him. But for Moses, he, he blessed him that day by showing himself. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Moses is seeking a visible, dramatic appearance of God so that he would know that God's presence was still with him and with the people. And God granted his request. He said, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. And after I've passed by, you will be able to see my back. What God's saying is, I want a relationship with people and with you. I want to be known by you. And we people have a bent towards sinning that only God can correct. And God forgives and God corrects because of a relationship. Fortunately for the people of Israel, Moses stood in the gap and saved them that day. But there's even better news for us because there's still a gap and there's still a need. But there's Jesus, God's only son. He's standing in that gap and he's pleading our case before the Father in heaven and he's offering his own life, his own body, his own blood as the sacrifice for your sin and for mine. And he's making a way for us to be right with God, for us to be made pure again, for God's righteous anger to be satisfied. See, Romans 7, Paul said, I can't do anything right. But it's followed by Romans 8 right after that that says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is listening to the prayers of his children and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Shall we pray? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. We thank you that we can see how you work that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So may we as your people be confident in you. May we be listening to your voice. May we stand on your word, direct our lives by it. May we be listening for your Holy Spirit. And may we just abide in you, just to remain in you and to be your people and to do your work and to be filled with your joy. Thank you. Amen.